0: Welcome to another episode of Reboot Ed, the podcast where we talk big ideas and issues in education and hardly ever come up with any answers. I'm Andrew Schwab, your co-host, and I am joined, as always, by... Mike Walmart, the other co-host. Yes, because you need two to have co-hosts at a minimum.
1: <laughs> how's it going? Uh, it's going good. My question is, how's it going with you? Uh, a lot of news coming out of the Bay Area these days. Uh air quality seems to be a little suspect.
0: Yeah. Well, um, we're doing better than um, a lot of other people who've had to evacuate and are losing houses and, For sure. and all of that. We're kind of in the center of it all. So we're like ringed by fire um, and we're just dealing with the smoke. But um, there's been a lot of evacuations all throughout this area. So, you know, um, thinking about all those families who've been displaced. Um, For sure.
1: Yeah. Thoughts and prayers to everybody that's being impacted by this yeah so we've
0: it's weird we've had the windows and doors closed for like you know for the past several days and just running the ac because it's also hot um and you go outside and it's you know it smells like you're at uh, there's a, a campfire going all the time and wow uh, it's been so bad it gets bad in the afternoons where you can actually see you know the haze if you look outside it's it's uh it's almost like it's in you know it's
1: in the front yard you can See the smoke. Yeah. So. Well, we've actually had a, a, a bit of that. Nothing is serious or significant as what you're experiencing. But the air quality down here in Ventura County is also uh, bordering between moderate and uh, not safe for people with health conditions, uh, mm-hmm. all stemming from the smoke um, of the fires up in northern California
0: yeah I mean, you can see the smoke plumes from space we're um we're like heavy red I think I think we're as red as you can get uh, with some really bad air, so um yeah just wow. hoping the weather turns, the firefighters you know they're they're doing their heroic effort, um, but the containment's not that big right now, so right. just keep keep watching out uh hoping it doesn't jump the 101 because that's it's kind of just to the east of us right now, so
1: mm. yeah, well like I said, thoughts and prayers to everyone that's being impacted by this. Yep. So
0: kind of in our continuing conversations around COVID-19, this is just another thing, um, which I think, you know, ties into this just unprecedented year and the idea that change, just just when we think we may have gotten our, you know, solid ground underneath us, something else happens, which seems to be the trend this year. So I'm I'm excited to talk to our our guest today. And why don't you go ahead and
1: introduce yeah, them? Yeah, as as am I. You sent me a text, or DM'd me, or called me. I don't remember. You you communicated with me um, a couple weeks ago um, about our guest, um, and um, I started reading a piece that um, he published on Twitter, and it was really really good. Uh, But he used a term that I thought I was the only one in educational circles that actually knew this term. So when I saw the term, I was really excited because here's a kindred spirit in terms of a viewpoint of leadership that I think, especially now, is definitely something that uh, needs to be parsed and discussed and and brought out. So um, I contacted uh, David Culverhouse. Uh, who graciously agreed to come on with us and and talk about this. So, David, thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Um, uh,
1: w- talking before we, we started recording, you've been a principal. You now work at uh, a county office. Um, yes. Out- outline, um, outline your educational career before I ask you about your musical career. Oh, Seeing okay. all the guitars in the background, it was like, man, i I need to meet this dude. We got a jam, man.
2: Yeah, um, I I was at a district for probably right around 25 years. Uh, taught middle school for 10 years. Uh, taught upper elementary for about two years. Part of that was I was told, hey, if you're going to go into administration, uh, you're not sure where they're going to put you, so it's good to learn different systems. Uh, never taught high school, but I did sub in high school a little bit. I was a program specialist. I was an uh, system principal or elementary administrator. I was a principal um, and now at a county office. And so, um, yeah, I've been at it for I guess I'm nearing right around getting near 30 years.
1: Wow. And, and what do you currently do at the county office?
2: Um, I do a lot of work around leadership and LCAP. Uh, which is now the Learning Continuity Plan. So uh, we're reading those uh, very heavily lately. I think a lot of people saw those as um, not going to be a very complex document. But, uh, and Andrew, you might be able to speak this. It's a little more complex than I think people expected it to be. So uh, there's a lot of reading going on right now with our Learning Continuity Plans and just supporting our districts in everything, differentiated assistance, Um Uh, CSI ATSI um, yeah so it's our work kind of rolls into a lot of different arenas I'm actually going to be doing a training this week on liberatory design and how to utilize that to support equity in districts oh
1: interesting Um, I'm gonna park that because we need to we need to get into that a little bit as well Andrew, is there anybody at your county office that you have as a resource for your um, LCAP?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: our county office has a team
0: that is also working with us. I think that's that's fairly standard. Um, is it? I will agree with you, David. I was not. I don't think we were expecting the new LCAP or the learning continuity plan to be quite as um, involved as it's turning out to be, particularly given the condensed timeline. We. We basically yeah. have to do everything we did with the LCAP in two months, which is crazy. Yeah,
2: and, and and it's difficult, too, because there's a lot of board meetings that go into that process, not only just in getting it approved, but then if there's recommendations coming also. So, yeah, so completely understand.
1: And I'm assuming there's also the requisite involvement of stakeholders and the meetings that kind of flow out of that, which would be a challenge takes, these days and, and yeah. takes time
0: it, it literally is they, they took the LCAP process which we used to do in about eight months right. and pretty much condensed it down from I think we got the template well first week of August and yeah. our first board meeting for public hearing is mid-September so you know yeah. five weeks something like that to Oh wow. put together a, a comprehensive plan on our learning continuity process
1: as yeah. though in a COVID environment, you didn't have a few things that demanded your immediate attention. That's a very tight timeline. Yeah.
2: I, I think, um, you know, your California Department of Ed had said that the, the one thing they really wanted to do was to get out to the stakeholders and educators. Uh, what is it you're really trying to do this year upfront and early? And so the timeline has been really tight. But um, Yeah, it's quite a process.
0: Yeah. Anyway, we're working through it. Actually, yeah. <laughs> we have to. <laughs> there's, there's no option. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's all part and parcel for the way this year seems to be going right now, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So um, what, what um, motivated me to contact you, David, was the piece that you wrote um, called Surviving and Thriving in a VUCA World. Um, yeah. And uh, it's available on Twitter. Um, downloadable as a, a fairly short little ebook, but yeah, excellent, a- excellent stuff. Where did you learn about the concept of VUCA?
2: Yeah, that. Uh, and it, it would probably go back to a variety of places. And so. One of the things I do is I facilitate for the National Institute of School Leadership. And so there is pieces in there where that comes out. And it's kind of funny this year as we work with, um, and, and when we when we work with what we call NISL, who's actually been moving more to the NCEE um, overhead of their, um, their company or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, as, as we've gone through that, it's kind of funny this year because we've kind of told people, hey, look, We went from talking about what it's like to survive in VUCA to we're just going to put you right in there and let's see how it goes. And so um, so there's parts of that in the work that I do with NISL. But um, I mentioned to you previously, I had done some uh, some training on organizational work around um, supporting organizations uh, that we did on the fields of Gettysburg. And we went to the War College. So there's probably uh, uh, bits and pieces that I heard there. And then I, I think another person who probably would have pushed me into it a little bit uh, back in maybe 2015 or so would have been Lisa K. Solomon, too, who is a, um, a designer in residence at the Stanford D School, who's just a wonderful, wonderful thinker. Um, and so there's just a, a, a lot of different places that I pulled that
1: from. So. Um, for listeners, VUCA is an acronym, V-U-C-A. That stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Yes.
2: Um,
1: and typically, it's it's a term to describe the leadership challenges that people take um, in military operations where nothing is really black and white. You never have all the information you need. Things are changing; they're dynamic. Um, in the military, they're kinetic. Uh, things are moving and impacting. Uh, decisions on an ongoing basis. Uh, I learned about the term from uh, a Navy SEAL friend of mine a guy named Ed Heiner who wrote a book on leadership uh, that I really think is excellent Um, but the thing about that world is um, I've been of the opinion for a long time that the other place where things are changing all the time. You never have all the information. You have to make decisions uh, in fairly short order on a consistent basis. So there's a lot of ambiguity, a lot of complexity. Uh, VUCA describes the world of an education leader in many of the same ways that it describes the world of a military leader um, in in a combat situation. Obviously, there are some differences between combat and education, because nobody's shooting at you, but, um, (laughs) the, the environment, uh, in which we're asking our leaders to make these decisions is, is very, very similar. Um, and VUCA is a term that frankly, I think every leader should understand and come to terms with, uh, in, in several ways. And what you, what you've alluded to in your, um, in your ebook is many of the same sort of concepts that, that we've talked in the past with leaders at schools that we've worked with. Um, you start your thing uh, with with a statement. And, and I'm curious from two standpoints. So you say disruption is a mindset. Um, talk about that not only from a conceptual standpoint, but why did you start your article with that? That statement.
2: It probably goes back to even years and years ago um, with Shelley Burgess and I can't remember the other fellow's name. We used to run um, a West Coast version of Sat Chat, which was a Saturday morning chat to get educators, um, you know, starting to think and discuss. And uh, and this goes back quite a ways. You know, this is this is quite a few years ago. And, um, and one of the ways I used to always um, kind of leave the chat every morning was um, if you're going to disrupt your organizations and your institution, you have to first disrupt your own mindset. And, and I think one of the things that I saw for years, especially for um, people moving into leadership positions, was a sense of I've arrived. And to me, it's a sense mm-hmm. of now the work's even getting more difficult. Um, and, and so, I think in some ways you have to be willing to constantly be looking up information, looking up articles, searching out books that disrupt your own thinking. Um, And and, and I think that's just becoming the norm now. Uh, A lot of people struggle with that. A lot of people say, well, that's really not what education is about. But you're living in a time where kids are walking out into a very different world. Um, great articles, you know, from like McKinsey and company where they talk about education to employment. And and there's so many kids who are walking out of paying for a, a, a real hefty price for a college education. And they're walking out into jobs that they don't have skills for. And they're finding out that they didn't know the marketplace and they weren't being mentored. And so in some ways, I think we have to disrupt our mindset to be much more aware of what's happening around us, and we can't be insulated in the, I would say maybe the educational cocoon that um, we've kind of been under for so long, where it was very linear. You move kids from here to here to here, you graduate them, and then you know from there companies will will, will um, you know teach them whatever else they need to know, and and that world's kind of disappeared. And and for and for many ways we have to start to think about how do we disrupt our thinking. In ways that allow us to not just change what we do, but to help make kids successful for a world that they're walking out into that's very different. Right, that's you, a little long-winded there, but
1: no, I think I think I think it's it's spot on, and wh- I think what you allude to is that in terms of our work, um, what what should be our work to develop educational leaders, this idea about a d- disruption as a mindset, and this idea that. We've got to stay current. We've got to stay focused on the the latest information and the thinking around what our mission, in in terms of education, really is with our students. Um, that sense of currency is, in many many circles, at least in my experience, sort of a novel idea. Um, you know, we we tend to think that information is kind of static, and we've kind of, like you said, sort of arrived, and now we can kind of settle back and pull the strings uh, kind of behind the curtain a little bit and and keep this thing going. Um, you made another comment that I, I thought was really astute. Um, you said um, the typical mantra, and I've actually used this in presentations and conversations in the past, and this gave me pause, uh, and I, I need to re- recalibrate um, the conversation I have when I work with school leaders, um, the mantra has been, we're getting kids ready for jobs that do not yet exist, um, which is a truism. But yeah. you make a couple statements about why you think that's the wrong focus. Uh, talk talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, because in, in the opening there, I, <laughs> no one really pushed back on that. I thought I'd get a lot of pushback on that one. Um, I, I think the reason that I was putting that out there was that that's an out you know because I I can't get you ready for jobs that don't exist because I have no way to figure out how to get you ready for that Mm -hmm. and so the it goes back to um I think back in like 2015 I I got flown out to speak at a conference in in New Jersey and, and I think the thing one of the slides I created there said you know we're not getting kids ready for um or, or even people ready for jobs that are yet to exist. We're getting them ready for uh, profound, profound shifts and and uh, exponential movement that's happening. And so I think. You know, we have a tendency like to think if I give a kid a tool, then they'll be ready. But by the time they're out, that tool is no longer even useful. And so how do you get kids to be more adaptive to the world around them? How do you get kids to be willing to want to learn? And, and not only kids, how do we get adults to be more adaptive? It's that it's that whole idea of I call them the abilities. There's learnability, there's adaptability and there's agility. And I don't think that's really been um, on our radar. As educators, um, our job was just to get kids the knowledge that they need so that they can graduate and move out. But there is a lot of different skill sets and, and necessities that kids need to walk out into today's world that we didn't need to when we were young. So, um, yeah, I, I think that was a pushback because it's easy to say, well, I can't get kids ready for that because that doesn't exist yet. So I'm just going to focus on this. And, and then when they get out, they'll, they'll work it out and so i think we have to be much more aware um than uh than just saying you know we're getting kids ready for jobs that don't exist yet so um
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and and i think the outcome of the conversation that i've had when i'm using that is is in in many ways exactly the same it's not any more about creating a bank of assimilated factoids and knowledge pieces that is important for our kids what we need is to equip them to be able to assimilate uh unfamiliar information in unfamiliar contexts and make sense of it so that they can do something that they they've really had very little preparation for it's about creating learners um and understanding that process, as opposed to content experts in whatever field it is that we're focusing on at the time.
2: And, and just to to kind of add to that, what you just said is really what our needer our leaders need to be able to do, and to be able to model within our organizations if we're going to be able to cascade that down into the classroom. Well, uh, but, you know, no, go ahead. Um, no, I was just saying that they, you know, um, a, a lot of us in education, we came up as content experts. You know, maybe you were good in the classroom, so then you moved up to AP. You did well there. You moved up to principal, and you know, from there you went into the district office, and then from there, you know, I'm kind of going through my world.
1: Um, but I well, mean, I mean, let's back up a little bit. You you were uh, uh, effective in the classroom in the sense that you exhibited good classroom management, you didn't send a whole lot of kids to the office. When somebody sat in your classroom a couple times a year, you could uh, do well on the evaluation process that was all about a model that's frankly been obsolete for a long time. Mm -hmm. Then uh, you could be uh, recruited to do WASC reports and other administrative things that required Certain level of management skill, then you were kind of hinted, well, you know, you should think about uh, being an administrator. So, uh, if that was of interest, then you went to a year of continuing education and and got your admin credential in some way, shape, or form um, and got a job as an AP. Really, you were being rewarded for your managerial skills not yes. your leadership skills, yes. um, and uh, you, you mentioned. Go Sorry. No. <laughs> um, well, okay, so y- you, um, you had a quote um, about preparing our leaders and our organizations to handle this sort of VUCA environment that's the reality, um, well, especially now with COVID, but even before then, and um, you quoted, uh, Ertel and Solomon, uh, where they said we still hire and reward people mainly for their ability to exploit known ideas.
2: Yes, and then that was kind of going to to speak into what you were you were just talking about. A lot of times we move up in organizations because we're good at doing the things that keep the ship moving, you know, yep. and so. Uh, you know, in, in the and, and I have this quote that I use. Uh, in the past, we built the ship to sustain, and now we need to build it to adapt. And so, when when you think about that, um, it it's hard to move from a mindset that is just about being compliant and doing what you need to, to then being able to lead and function in a different way, because. It, What happens is when difficult situations come about, like what we're experiencing, and if we've only taught the people in the organization to implement what's been given to them from the top, they don't know how to react and adapt without being given some kind of command and control kind of way of of maneuvering. And so I I think it's very important that um, yeah I, I, I think in organizations right now there's two things that we have to think about you have to give people autonomy but you also have to give them capacity or you have to if you're going to give them capacity you also have to give them some autonomy and and one of the things that we have a tendency to do is give them one or the other
1: mm-hmm.
2: we give you we give you capacity but we don't give you autonomy or we give you autonomy and no capacity and either way is in many ways, frustrating and dysfunctional. And so how do we get people to have both of those things so that they, and and I'm gonna go back to a military term that I I like to talk about is that idea of, um, and you might've heard of this, commander's intent. Commander's intent is that understanding at the end of the day, we all know where we wanna be. But also, you know, in military, when they drop you off, things happen and you have to adapt. Well, think about our classrooms. Every day starts out in a different way, and they're all adapting. But do our organizations have the clarity at the end of knowing where we're trying to be, what we're after, and then being allowed to have the capacity to adapt to get into there? Because they each of their paths are going to be a little bit different. And um, and and one last thing, I'll, I'll add this quote from uh, Bob Johansson from the Institute for the Future. He says the one thing he says is that. Um, the, the future is going to punish certainty and it's going to reward clarity. And I think one of the things that we have to try and move away from is trying to provide people certainty and get much better at giving people clarity and understanding that we're going to have to learn our way through this.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's really astute. Um, so often, like you said, uh, somebody's put in a, I'm going to call it a managerial role because it's obviously not. A, a leadership role when they're given all the responsibility but none of the authority to carry out whatever project or whatever imperative they've been assigned, um, and that's that's kind of the way things roll. I think part of that is evolutionary, right? We've we've kind of had our leadership um, development program into this sort of model where, like you say. Um, we, we we reward people to to exploit known ideas. There are tools that you can apply to this situation, and you're expected to do that. Um, and when you find out that you don't have any of these tools that really apply to this situation, this uh, this idea of VUCA has really come to roost. Yeah, uh, it creates a conundrum for people. Um, both the individual that's faced with that task immediately but that person's superiors um and maybe the people that are working underneath that that person um because they're not equipped with the leadership skills and the perspective to kind of share what's going on and get people moving in in a direction i mean how many times have we seen superintendents not really articulate a strategic imperative or you know in in the, the way you put it, I think, is really good, this this idea of commander's intent. What the hell are we trying to do here? Uh, yeah. and, and what what sort of latitude are you going to give me uh, so that I have both the um, responsibility and the authority to move my contingent in that direction? Um, we, we see it in yeah. a different way.
2: And, and just to add to that, um, and I've had some pushback on this. Um as I talk to leaders in in a variety of positions all across the country, even because you know with Twitter and different things, you're able to have these conversations on a on a bigger platform and bigger spectrum is that um, there's this tendency to for people to find like we use this or we use this kind of thinking and I think today's leaders need to be able to braid a variety of frameworks and understandings because design thinking is wonderful, but so is improvement science, and so is adaptive leadership and understanding all those things. And it's not just understanding that, well, we just do design thinking in our school. It's like, how do you pull the different parts of these various frameworks that add to your context so that actually, you're just pulling the best of things that work for you instead of just saying, you know, what we're just going to run this program, and it becomes very implementative instead of um, much being much more adaptive. I think.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. You make okay. go ahead, Andrew. I was going to say I appreciate you saying that, Dave, because I've been I'm one of those people who've struggled to get into design thinking as a sole framework, and you know, and it's really, really uh, popular up here. Um, in education, but I see it as one, one potential tool, not the end-all be-all, and I do think sometimes when people are looking at these different frameworks, they spend a lot of time looking at the framework and the process instead of actually um, focusing on the problem they're trying to solve, um, and the process becomes more important than the outcome.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, think of it like this. It's like a bad lesson plan. And, and as a teacher, you just keep plowing because you you just hope it's going to work because you planned it. Well, you can just keep plowing forward and and it just, you know, because that's the framework I was told to use. And so now I'm going to move to this part of the lesson plan, um, you know, because I got through the anticipatory set and I'm going to follow and you can just see it breaking down. It's It's, it's trying to figure out, look, when the context provides is understanding that I've done enough learning in these variety of areas that I can pull from a different framework. Because the thing I like about design thinking is I like the empathy side of it. And so it's much more, um, it's warmer to me than the improvement science work. But the improvement science work has its validity too. And so how do I then braid those or, or meld those together in ways that I can bring the best out of both of them. And then where do different other frameworks fill into this instead of just saying, well, well, no, we're doing this, and so we have to stick to it. And after a while, it just it starts to break down.
1: You, you made the, the statement that um, from a leadership standpoint, you can't rely on procedures to make decisions in complex situations, which I think is sort of the summary of – getting so tied into one way of thinking about a problem uh, and trying to come up with solutions that you, you sort of lose the, the forest for the trees. you can't you can't get to that commander's intent idea uh, because you get tied up in following a certain protocol when even that protocol has probably demonstrated it's not the right one for this situation. you know every yeah. every lesson plan I ever did, um, it's that old military adage, you know, the, the, every plan goes to crap when the bullets start to fly. There are all sorts of variables that are going to impact what you had intended. And if you're not nimble enough to adapt to that, um, then you, you're going to have chaos in your classroom. And, and um, think about this
2: to go along with that. Think about the many organizations that you, vo- you view in a variety of different um, contexts. Do they have that commander's intent where people know where they're going, there's deep clarity around that, and then they're able to adapt? Or do a lot of organizations, do they find the leaders just trying to get them to march in the same direction? And when you ask the people what you're heading towards, they're like, we don't know, but we're moving this direction. Yep, and absolutely. So, yeah, and and the, the, that's a big chasm there. I think people just see that as being really close together and it's not, Having deep clarity about what you're trying to do allows you to adapt. Just marching forward with no clarity is just you're just moving.
1: Yeah. Somewhere. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and that's the old adage, you know, you're gonna wind up you're gonna wind up somewhere down the road. You just don't know where it is right now. Yeah. Uh, which is not necessarily a good thing. Um so um, part of what you talk about in your article too is this idea of um Things have evolved um, with organizations, and it's definitely evolved that way with schools. About It used to be a vision of having these static technical sort of problems that you could apply a certain set of tools or principles to and, and sort of manage your way out of it. But now we've got what you called adaptive challenges, and it requires a different mindset from leadership.
2: Yeah, I I think, you know, you go back 15, 20 years as a principal, your job was to make sure you had the right teachers in the classroom. Everyone had their credential. You know, you had schedules so kids go to lunch and get on the buses. And those are all technical problems. I I call those binder problems. You know, there's binders on how to do all that stuff. Your adaptive challenges don't always come with a binder. Um, It's really, you know, it's there's no there's really no answers to some of these it's just how do you handle them in 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 more positive ways to move forward and and the more i've dug into it over the years you know you can start to call these things tensions you can start to call them polarities because um a lot of times what we find is um either or thinking you know it's either this or it's that and usually it's neither this or that it's not divergent thinking only because then that leads to chaos, it's not convergent thinking only, because that becomes very static and status quo, is how, as a leader, can you get in between these two polarities or tensions and then be able to kind of like a tug of war, um, I think, adapt within those to know when divergent thinking is necessary, because at a certain point, you need more ideas coming in, but in the end, you can't chase every idea. Then where do you move to convergent thinking so that people can start to then focus all these ideas down to what do we really want to move towards? And so I think we live in a time of um, leaders have to get much more better with, with what I would say capitalized and. Um, it's and thinking instead of either or and, and dealing with these polarities that they're going to be facing because we have a tendency especially like in these VUCA-infused environments to to move to either or thinking. Um, And um, we want to solve the problem because as educators, we know we might only get one hour on, on a Monday to meet with our people. So in that one hour, we need to solve all of our problems. And we have to start to think about how do we have some questions that we can allow to linger and incubate and percolate so that people can really start to deal and grapple I think with some of these problems in in ways that aren't leading to veneer solutions uh, because of time and and that's not saying that the thinking isn't good it's just we have such limited time we you know we we throw an idea out there two people come up with an answer and then we say hey anyone else no good let's go with that and and then the kind of environments we're in, and especially with the adaptive challenges we're facing, it's going to take a little more time to kind of really dig into the root causes of what's leading to these issues so that we actually then have time to come to better
0: solutions.
1: Yeah. I'm very long-winded today. Sorry. Oh, no, that's great. I think um, these are ideas that... You're giving
0: Mike a run for his money. Don't worry about
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> these are ideas that in my mind, are so central to um, educational organizations. If if we don't get these ideas into the daily conversation of our school leaders, then we're gonna continue to kind of get what we've always got, which we're learning is not anywhere near what we need. Um, and, and there's a factor in that. I loved your term, um, an organization's immune system. I've always called it, um, status quo or inertia or you know this resistance to adapting or changing um and calling it the immune system i think is is really a great way to sort of describe what happens when somebody steps into this environment sort of on their own and tries to take a more vuca oriented leadership stance T- talk about that concept a little bit well
2: I- I think the most difficult thing about this and and often is put off to the side is that it's going to take real servant leadership. Um, and, and, And sometimes people don't see those working together. But in the end, when you start to really work deep into this work and make people grapple to build capacity, because a lot of times when things get difficult, the first thing they're going to do, especially if you're leading with questions, is question the leadership. Where's the leadership around here? Where's the answers? What do you want me to do? That's the time where leaders usually kind of recoil back to, you know what, here's what we need. You need to do this, this, and this. And in the end, no capacity is built under that. And so as a servant leader, you have to kind of put your own idea of being you know, the leader to the side, and and really push through with questions, and allow people to grapple with those questions. If you really want to get to real change, and then when what when I've talked to leaders about this before is the the servant part is so important because in the end, when you really are able to push through and get them to that next step where where they come to some deep solutions and build some new commitments, they'll say, "Look what we did." So there's no win in this other than you help people build greater capacity and commitment to to learning. And so I, I think that the hardest thing right now is that um, in many ways we've built education to be knowing organizations, and now we have to tell you we have to be learning organizations. Right. And, and going back to what Andrew said is how do we get our stakeholders to understand? Look. There is no answer to this and we're learning through this and we're adapting and we're moving forward and we need you to learn through this with us. And, and that's not only your stakeholders, it's your educators, it's your leaders. That learnability and moving from being like that knowing organization that for years we were able to be because the, the environment's a little more static is requiring us to really say, what does it mean to be a learning organization?
0: Well, and a um, really hard transition point right now for that is we're in the middle of this crisis and, you know, building that capacity. A lot of people use the metaphor, we're, we're building the plane as we're in flight. But I see the challenge, I mean, the, the challenge really is, is shifting um, that kind of decision making responsibility down into the organization, building that capacity to to problem solve as you said you know the the build a learning process um while you're in the middle of this crisis and everything you know decisions <laughs> seem to be having to made by the nah, minute nah. um it's just it's it's tough because the, the system wasn't designed you know our, our our leadership systems um and our organizations weren't designed to operate in this kind of um uh, environment and um so uh, it's it's uh, I think that's where a lot of the stress is coming from.
2: Yeah, it is very difficult because, um, you know, even on my boxer groups that I talk with, um, you know, and I'm trying to throw a few things out here to get a little pushback from on um, too. you know, is that, you know, I was talking to John Carripo, you know, quite a few weeks back and I said, because when you're in the midst of chaos and, and crisis and things like that, when you look at the research, and I, and I think Bill Starbuck's one of the guys who's done some research around this, and you can go into strategic foresight work and things like that, and what you find is that people struggle to learn in the midst of, cri- uh, of, of chaos and crisis. They're looking to get back to normal. They're looking to get back to what they once had. And so when this, and and they said it kind of goes through a cycle. When when it first happens, there's this idea of transformation and shifting, but the longer it goes on, the less that conversation happens. And you can watch as when this first started, that idea of transformation was all over the place. We're transforming. This is going to change everything about education. And now we're just trying to figure out how do we get back? And so the one thing I think leaders need to do right now is start to really kind of look at their formal and informal networks and start to say, okay, look, right now we're at a place that's been really difficult and we've really struggled and people are tired and and people have worked extremely hard and people are doing some phenomenal work. But we also can't leave the idea of trying to do things differently and better. So how do I start to not... Allow new ideas to come into the organization. How do I remotely support people to start to go? Hey, have you thought about this? Where do I drop some seeds, so the idea of transformation doesn't get lost in just trying to get back? And, and I think that's that's a difficult um, tension, you know, that we talked about that leaders are going to have to handle of, of getting people back, making sure they're well, making sure students are, are are well and families are well, but also how do we do this a little differently? How do we do it a little better? How do I sneak some ideas into there so we continue to improve?
1: You talk about leaders have uh, as, as being people that that really have to sort of master four different traits or Look at leadership from from four different lenses. Um, a leader is disruptor, as designer, um, as pioneer, and as challenger. Did I get those right? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, but I I've always um, talked to to people from a leadership standpoint as having several different lenses. Five is the one that that we've sort of used, but it's the same basic ideas. Talk about This idea that there are these different attributes that a leader's got to be able to bring forth, depending on what the circumstances are.
2: Yeah, I think that's kind of something that you know I've I've always kind of had in my thinking is that um, you know there's times where you need to be a manager, and there's times where you need to be a leader, Um, and it's understanding um, and and I think there's also times when you need to step back and let other people lead too. And so it's, it's, it's almost having a deeper level of emotional awareness or EQ. I think that's really important uh, for leaders right now because you need to know when your people are ready to, to disrupt things a little bit. Hey, let's take a look at this. Right now, that might not be the time. But also during this time, for me as a leader, I'm looking at the pioneering side of it. Okay, so right now, um, over the last couple of months, I've dug deeply into strategic foresight, I've dug deeply into scenario planning and things like that because what we have to be aware of is that we're marching into a, you know, that, that VUCA future that we're talking about, we're marching into that and there is no one future that's gonna emerge out of that. And so how do you build scenarios that are helpful for people and what are some processes for that? So I think at some points, like when, when, you know, your organization needs a little bit of time to become more stable, then the leader has to be a little bit of a pioneer during this time. How are you increasing your learning? How are you moving out? How are you challenging yourself to think differently so that you could actually bring that back into the organization? And so it's understanding, you know, which levers to push and when and and with who too you know it's like um it, it, i believe in every organization each of us is a pioneer and a settler all at the same time um you know in many things in an organization i might not feel comfortable with and i'm a settler but there's other things i'm a pioneer with and it's helping people to allow them to move along and be a settler where they need to and be a pioneer where they need to also
1: listening in different camps for different circumstances. Always, I think key is this idea of servant leadership, always recognizing that your main task is to develop the people that, that you're working with and create a, a, an environment where increasing and improving capacity is, is one of the focuses. Um, I like your, your statement, um, viewing the future as a, a verb and not a noun it's a process it's not a thing that we're just sort of aiming for um so i i i think the ideas that you've brought up um and the vision of a leader in in terms of these qualities um especially with respect to how things are involved um, we're we're developing we're, we're we're being forced into a world that um, we're not going to be able to avoid. Um, it's 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 a VUCA world. It's going to continue to be a VUCA world, and we're never going to get back to that sort of um, environment that that we got so used to in the past. So let's talk a little bit. I, I'm curious about your vision of. It's pretty clear that the number of leaders that have this mindset or these, um, these sort of uh, capabilities at this point is um, pretty small. Um, where the challenge is, um, is what do we do? How would you develop a program to sort of instill this kind of development and this sort of, uh, let's call it training um, in in an organization and in, say, a leadership development program for a school district, let's say?
2: Well, that's a difficult question. Um, yeah, it, it's funny. Uh, um, about four or five years back, I did a, um, a, a set of half-day sessions where, I mean, I even built a, a half-day session on uh, using curiosity as a um, a leader skill set. Um, you, I, I think the hard thing is we, we have to get to a place where we, we can have the conversations um, and you have to also be open to the conversations. What I find is a lot of leaders say, you know, when we get into these conversations, they're like, this has nothing to do with me. What kids do once they graduate, that's really not my job. My job is to get them to graduate. And I say, yes, it is, and no, it's not. And so it's its really starting to get people to um, create, I, I think we need to create some, and I, I'm not answering this very well. I mean, I have things in my head, but they're not coming out very well, is we have to create some spaces where we can build deeper awareness of, of if, if our world is moving towards much more automation, if we see AI coming in and it's changing the workplace and we see that the knowledge economy is shifting jobs. And a lot of people will tell us the job of education is not to get people ready for work, but it's also understanding the job of education is to get people ready for the world of work. And we're finding out that we're leaving kids Without the skill sets to be prepared to actually go out into the workforce and do those kind of jobs that are becoming part of the knowledge economy. And so, how do you build awareness where leaders can think about that to determine how does that work in a classroom? How do I start to think about building that awareness with my staff? How do I build my own awareness on an ongoing basis that I become a learner that allows me to help my organization do better things for kids? to not only just have better outcomes, but for them to have a better life as they walk out. And what we're finding out right now is that there's a real disconnect between what kids are walking out with and what's being asked of them as they're trying to move into professional circumstances. And so I I think our leaders need to take the step to figure out what needs to change in education. And it's not everything. Some things change and some things don't. Is how do I push that forward in a way that I'm benefiting my students for a world that's shifting in ways that sometimes we're not very very aware of? And so I know that's not a leadership training, but it could be. Uh, I mean, I've done work around that, but it's it's how do you build that? not only that idea of of what's coming, but for them to be more curious to learn so that they're preparing their teachers and their organization and their students for, for, to me, a world that's going to be very different. Think about what it's going to be like for a kindergartner walking out of school, and graduating, what that world's going to look like. And and if you wait till they're in high school to start doing things different, we're we're long gone by then.
1: Yeah.
2: and, and and we're finding those disconnects. So how do we build systems thinkers who have greater awareness to prepare kids and the educators for a world that's, that's very different than the one we grew up in? Especially, and, and I want to throw this out there, a lot of educators were winners of the
1: system. Well, all, almost all the educators. I, I, I got to tell you, I hated school. I, I especially hated high school. And... I, um, if it wasn't for sports, I, I would likely never have paid any attention to what I was doing in class. But um, being hugely competitive and wanting to be eligible for sports is basically the motivation for me to do anything in high school. I, I couldn't tell you that I learned a whole lot. I couldn't tell you that I cared if I learned a whole lot. Um, and I've seen that in a lot of kids. We, we prep kids to play a game and if you're really good at, at playing the game and like you said you win uh well if if education is my thing for whatever reason um then yeah those are the folks that that come back and and engage in it as a profession but yeah. and yeah go ahead sorry you No, know, that sort of um epistemology sort of creates a a positive feedback loop um and I, I go back to your idea about the organization's immune system. We strengthen the immune system and make it more resistant to change or other concepts and ideas uh, entering into the organization if we don't consciously force ourselves to recognize what it is that we're that we're doing in terms of our hiring and our recruitment practices. Yeah
2: and uh, I had a conversation a few years ago with uh, Richard Elmore, and you probably know his work around, um, uh, uh, escape me, um, instructional rounds, sorry. Um, and and he said, you know, he's, he's toured thousands of schools and he told me the ones that are really doing different either struggled in school or didn't like school. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that people who did well in school aren't changing things. But if a, if something really works for you, and this is in any type of organization, yeah. and it was successful, it's hard to move away from what gave you past success. The problem is when the world changes and that success is no longer successful, can you disrupt your own mindset to make a shift?
1: And we see that, don't we, with um, um, we tend to see the higher socioeconomic uh, school districts um, being more resistant to change because we've always gotten good test scores here. Ergo, some, we must be doing something right. Well, yeah. yeah, except what you're doing right is you're building schools and neighborhoods with really expensive homes. Um, it's it's not anything within the system that's that's creating anything.
0: So is, is this one of those questions that we're going to end up without any answers and, and we need to take a systemic well, approach to it like Finland and, and change your basic thinking every 20 years to, to really have an impact on the entire system? Or is this something that, you know, we can change in the next, well, can we do it in the next two weeks? Cause
1: that would be really helpful. Well, there's uh, Linda Darling Hammond years ago um, when she was um, doing some of her early work at Stanford. Oh God, that tells you how old I am um, at Stanford um, said that really the only uh efficient way to do this is with some d10 caterpillars you're going to have to just level the whole system and build it again that's essentially what finland did 20 30 years ago and and we're now seeing you know the results of that i i think we have to effectively do the same thing but like you said andrew we've got to do it in a way that isn't going to be so catastrophic uh, it, we've we've got to rebuild the airplane while it's in flight. And that's a huge challenge. And, and
2: and think about this. Think about a company like Amazon right now. Amazon is a titanic of an organization, right? And so the front face of, of Amazon doesn't always feel like it's changing, but they're running thousands of experiments on the backside to improve what they're doing. And right. so it's how do you... How do you keep the core of what's working going while you allow people to have time for some experimentation and trying things in a way that keeps the organization adapting and moving without complete disruption with a sense of disruption at the same time. And and I think that's when when you get to that place and it becomes inherent in the organization, I think that's when you become a much more adaptive organization. It just becomes something what you do instead of it being an event.
0: Yeah, well said. Okay, so well I'm I'm the guy who usually says uh stop talking, Mike.
1: But yeah, um oh, okay.
0: I, I feel like I have right. to say Everybody you brought up,
1: probably stopped talking, dude. Now you're going to send me down a rabbit hole. <laughs> no, no, no. We're getting we're getting up to an hour, man. You got to wrap it up. Um, well, I, I was just thinking, um, Young Zhao, um, who we had on the podcast back in the day, just wrote an article um, uh, about how this this crisis that we're facing now because of COVID, um, in terms of education is really a, a chance for us to engage in some transformational change. Uh, and he was saying the same sort of things that you're saying, David. We can we can think about the future in terms of it being a noun and and doing everything we can to just get through this so that it can be the way it was. Or we can embrace this as um, a, a sort of transformational opportunity. Um, but the reality is that all hangs on leadership. Yeah. And to me, that's, that's sort of the conundrum. Um, you know, what, what can we do to sort of develop, uh, a leadership mindset in time of a crisis without just, you know, completely destroying everybody from, from a mindset standpoint. And it's, yeah. that's, that's a huge, huge challenge.
2: And it's going to require, because now, You know, I think a lot of people went into this with maybe a month or two on the mind of this, where we're going to be and it. And it's become something different. And so that it's going to take a level of resilience, I think, to push forward in some transformational ways. Because once you get into like a length of time, it's harder to consider the transformation. You're more considering, how do I just get back? How do I make this? just happen you know i mean a lot of times when i'm doing work during the day you know we talked about reading those learning continuity plans my wife on the other side of the wall is teaching first grade and i'm i'm hearing what's happening over there and i'm watching it happen in real time in, in the same way and it's it's um and i think we're all lacking a sense of um creative space right now because our calendars are more full than they've ever been and so it's like you march from one event to the other, and there's not a lot of downtime to really even create space for transformational thinking. And so in some ways, today's leaders are going to have to be resilient enough to carve out some space to, to learn. And, and, and that is going to be difficult because the amount of time that we're spending online right now and the amount of meetings that we're in and webinars and Zooms is um, taking a cognitive load that's much more than what we're used to.
0: Yeah. Well, too it, it takes more effort because you, to get the face to face time requires um, more meetings and more scheduled time. I just yeah. want to say, I think I really appreciate hearing um, all your thoughts today, David. And, um, you know, thinking about this, I really hope as educational leaders, we're not in such a rush to get back to the way things were that we don't take a step back and realize that the way things were may not be where they should have been or what we should be hoping to get back to in the first place. Um, and that this does become an opportunity for us in education as educational leaders to reimagine what's possible and, and what education can look like moving forward. I mean, if anything comes out of this, uh, my hope would be that that would be something. Yeah. I agree.
2: And we have wonderful people like you
0: two out
2: there who are doing incredible work in districts. I see it on Twitter and I, I see the work that you're putting in. And I, you know, and, and a lot of times, I, I mean, even Andrew, I can see what you're studying and you're working out in your mind how these things, you know, just by the, the tweets that you put out and, and what you're reading, you know, you can see the story that's unfolding and what you're trying to do to support your your organization and your students and your stakeholders.
0: Yeah, well, I probably read too much, but I am I am trying to be a, a, a learning leader and and taking as much as I can to make as informed decisions as we possibly can. So,
1: so David, um, where can people go to follow you and your thinking and the work you're doing?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, you can uh, find it. Find me on Twitter. Uh, it's just at d culverhouse. Uh, and then my blog is dcolberh.wordpress.com. There's actually three books on there. The one you mentioned uh, years ago, probably back in 2016, I did Scaling, Creativity, and Innovation. And then probably in like 2014 and 15, I did uh, The Changing Face of Modern Organization. Um, apparently, the publishers didn't like any of those. So those are all free on the blog. Um in the end, uh, you know, as educators, you write because you want to share some thinking and to try and get people to think different. You know, uh, you're not really trying to earn a living off of it. But, um, you know, it, there's probably a couple thousand pages in my blog, too. So I think I'm nearing like 500. Um, so,
1: yeah, I, I went on. Um... Uh, last week when we first started talking about getting on the podcast, I think your blog goes back to like 2011, 2012. yeah, there's a lot of stuff there.
2: Yeah, <laughs> no one reads it, but there's a lot there.
1: <laughs> well,
0: I'm almost i'm I, I, I've been cheating on my reading for my dissertation to read some of your stuff, so um uh, oh, you. You, you could you could probably develop a whole course off of a lot of the stuff you've written so far. Um, but with that, all right. So I'll post those links in the in the show um, notes as when I post. And um, I guess we can thank David for for joining us today. And
1: oh yeah, appreciate it for sure. Thank this you guys. This is yeah. this is really important work, and uh, I appreciate you coming on. And more so, I appreciate you putting this out there for people. Uh, I I, um, I think the more. Leaders who start engaging in this conversation, the better off we're going to be. Yeah,
0: definitely.
1: All right. Well, with that, Mike,
0: another show, another week. Yeah. Another week. Ben, it's been great talking to you. And I think we're going to talk again next week.
1: We might have I to keep you the street going.
0: I don't want to get blamed for another hiatus.
1: Yeah, well, you know, so far you've been really good.
0: Well, it's either this or I
1: write my dissertation, so, you know, this is easier. Well, David and I are happy to uh, distract you from your, your work with your dissertation. Yeah,
0: all right. Well, thanks, and we'll talk to everyone next week. Music, Welcome to the Show, by Kevin McLeod.